Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. Today's guest is Dr. Christian Parenti, a professor of economics at John Jay College, CUNY. He is the author of five books that deal with themes of state repression, social control, and political economy. I welcome Christian Parenti to Savage Minds. I was overwhelmed by your article when I read it the other day, hence I wrote you. Your article in the gray zone, how the organized left got COVID wrong, learned to love lockdowns and lost its mind, an autopsy. You point out in this article how the left has been stuck in March 2020, writing, its members have applauded the new biosecurity repression and calumniated as liars, grifters and fascists, any and all who dissented. Well, we saw this not only in the US, but around the planet, most especially in Italy, Australia, New Zealand. And I was not surprised by what you uncovered, given the plethora of identity politics that has taken over the left, where feeling has come to trump material reality, and dare I say, science. So we saw our society overwhelmed in March 2020 here, February 23rd, people were frightened. I was one of them. I was like, Oh, my God, this is you know horrible. But within two weeks, we knew who was at risk, we knew what the contagion meant in a very basic way still. And this seemed to have been the pause button that everyone conveniently touched. And we've remained stuck in this. What do you think brought this on in terms of a political framework where the left is ostensibly supposed to be looking out for the working class? I had to tune into Fox News to hear anyone talk about the working class. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Um, I think what it, this is a very American centric answer, but uh, I think it's important because of the role of American. America dominates public health globally. The WHO, two biggest funders are the American government and the Gates Foundation, right? So it's like America really sets the agenda for public health globally. And I think what happened was the election season of trying to get Trump out of the office, uh, out of office and the and Trump derangement syndrome is what kind of got this whole thing spinning. There, as I explained in the article, since the 1976 swine flu outbreak, which basically, uh, you know, was a non-event and the US, it begins, there's a couple soldiers at Fort Detrick in the US get sick with something, one soldier dies, it's not clear what it is and the, pandemic industrial complex, if you will, that is to say the symbiotic relationship between the regulators and, and big pharma. So the CDC and NIH and, and big pharma kind of kick into high gear. They crank out this vaccine and 20% of the country is vaccinated, including President Ford, before it is realized by researchers, uh, you know, academic researchers, the press and and the political class in both parties that, wait a minute, this, this swine flu is actually quite mild. It's not clear that anyone even died of it and that the vaccine was creating Guillain-Barre syndrome, it, uh, a, a sometimes permanent, sometimes temporary paralyzing syndrome, autoimmune disease. Uh, several hundred people died, 4,000 people claimed that they were injured and sued the federal government, and, and the vaccine campaign was suspended. From that point on, you see this pattern of this, this symbiotic alliance between industry and the regulators with each new virus 
attempting to gin up hysteria and panic. And this was until this moment, always thwarted to some extent by the critical capacities of the political class and the, the journalist, journalistic class. And people would eventually say, well, wait, wait, wait a minute. I mean, it doesn't seem like, um, you know, Zika is as bad as you say or whatever. I mean, it even happened with HIV, right? I mean, uh, they were uh, the CD, Anthony Fauci, who, whose outfit, the N, NI, NIAID is a subset of NIH. Uh, you know, he really rises to prominence with uh, HIV and they are pushing vaccines, right? I mean, there's still no HIV vaccine, right? And they're like maniacally focused on vaccines around HIV. And interestingly, it's not until, I think it's 87 that uh, Pelosi actually calls out Fauci. And, and when I say they're maniacally fixated on vaccines, I mean, they refuse to deal with what the, you know, the community, doctors and people suffering from AIDS and people with HIV are experimenting with alternative treatments, off-label use of various drugs. And the government is refusing to study any of this, right? And that means it's impossible. And, and, and if they don't study it, then they don't you know, give it any credibility. And if they don't give it any credibility, then insurance doesn't cover it, et cetera, et cetera, right? And so Pelosi actually calls out Fauci at a hearing. She says, if you had AIDS, would you do these various things you know, that, that the alternative, the research community um, uh, was, was uh, you know, experimenting with? And he says, foolishly, not realizing what he's saying, he's saying, yeah, if I, if I had AIDS, I would, uh, you know, and pneumonia, I would nebulize with this or that. I forget what the, the actual drugs were that they were working with. And they realize that, and he realizes like, well, I, I made a mistake and people turn on him. And so then Fauci does an about face and he starts working for two years with the community forces that are trying to develop treatments, right? As opposed to just what he had done previously, which is just say, never mind treatment, we got to wait for the vaccine, right? So even with it, with HIV, you've got this check on the kind of vaccine fixation, right? But what happened this time around, and it happens again and again with you know each one of these vaccines, there's just like you know ginning up this hysteria, um, and this time around, it was caught up in the tornado of Trump derangement syndrome and the election, and so. In March 2020, you have like, uh, you know, March 10th, the Democratic mayor of New York City, Bill de Blasio, is saying, look, if you're under 50 you got in, and healthy, you got nothing to worry about from this. Like, you might not even have symptoms, or if you do, it'll be like the flu. Five days later, he's closing all the public schools. And what happens in that month is that the, the virus becomes clearly politicized. And both parties, the Democrats and the Republicans, decide to face off on this. The Democrats think, okay, we, this time we've really got Trump. And the Republicans think, okay, uh, we are going to own the reopening and the Democrats are going to own the lockdowns and the lockdowns are going to be very unpopular, right? And so the, the Republicans sort of throw down the gauntlet, as it were, by Trump in late March saying, we want to open the economy by April. And then they're simultaneous with that, there are at least 32 protests in state capitals, which are organic in that it's like real people, mostly kind of small business owners feeling 
crushed by the lockdowns, but there's also right-wing financial support coming from um, the, uh, the DeVos Families Foundation and other kind of donor network types. Um, and, and some of these protests are, you know, people carrying guns, uh, carrying Confederate flags. It's this like hard right element marching on state capitals in Michigan. They're like, you know, uh, particularly harsh in how they attack uh, the, the governor, uh, Gretchen Whitmer. And so that just completely terrifies and whips up the Democratic Party ecosystem and base. And at that point, it's just off to the races. There's no room whatsoever for the left broadly defined, led by the Democratic Party, even when the left, the elements of the left that, that criticize the Democratic Party and don't think that they're part of its ecosystem, they're nonetheless dragged along by it. So at that point, there is no room for any kind of rethink, and we cannot accept new facts as they come in. And simultaneous with these spectacular and, and uh, scary looking protests at state capitals, what's going on and is not being covered in the news is that New York City has opened five field hospitals and badgered the Trump administration to send a naval hospital ship with 1,100 beds, and none of these are used. And so they're all quietly closed. And, you know, and there's no public rethink about, okay, well, wait a minute, this is a serious disease, but how serious is it really the second coming of the Spanish flu or not? And there couldn't have that moment of rethink because of Trump derangement syndrome, the fear that this guy was an American Mussolini. Uh, and in reality, I mean, Trump certainly seems to have kind of, you know, fascistic tendencies, but Trump is also profoundly incompetent, you know? Uh, and that's actually a crucial part of this. Trump couldn't control his, his own COVID task force. Anthony Fauci and Deborah Birx are out there spinning every day, whipping up hysteria. And according to Scott Atlas, who is a, a medical doctor who leans to the right, who's brought on to the Trump COVID task force and then writes a book about his experience. And he's obviously really loves Trump. And so he's very, you know, muted in his criticism. But you can still tell, you know, that basically, like, the situation is that Trump doesn't like this task force, but he's too incompetent to do anything about it. If Jared Kushner doesn't execute it for him, it doesn't happen. Jared Kushner seems to get really spooked by the press coverage, and they kind of freeze, and they allow this task force to carry on with its messaging. Trump does his own alternative messaging, but never moves to shut down the task force. And the lockdowns are done by state governors, right? And so the contradiction, of course, is that there are Republican governors who also pursue pretty aggressive lockdowns. But by, you know, by mid-April, the, the pandemic in the United States is totally politicized. And you know, this kind of uh, total lack of reason, total lack of reconsideration is pushed down through the international public health bureaucracy. And it's not that the rest of the world then just like does what the American dominated public health infrastructure tells them to. It's that also like in every power center in the world, from the Italian government to street gangs in Latin America, every hierarchy, every power center uses this emergency, this crisis to just grab power and do more of what it was already doing. And so then we're off to the races and everybody is 
um, you know, everybody with power is abusing it in the name of public safety. Yes, we saw this uh, immediately in Italy where people, we were barred very early on from leaving our homes. The lockdown started on 23 February and 10 days later, we could not leave our homes. And to leave our homes only for shopping, medicine, hospital, basically, we had to print out a form, a form which changed almost on a daily basis. So we were constantly having to Google what the latest form was printed out just to go to the shop. And we That's had terrible. queues outside of the, it was awful. I was in fear because I was a new immigrant to Italy. And it was daunting to think that you could be stopped after reading the expose by the CNN journalist who was almost arrested because she was sitting next to her husband in the car. They got a summons because of this. And I thought, well, this is insane. So you can sleep together in the same bed, but you can't drive in the same car. You know, she was right outside yeah. of Milan when this happened. And the draconian measures taken here were all in some kind of perverse homage to what China was doing. And of course, that left mm. me with bells ringing, thinking, since when has any Western government taken its cues from China in terms of mass population control? Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. The the imitation of of China and and the kind of um, there is a sort of growing anxiety about liberal democracy and neoliberal capitalism in the West, right? I mean, even even the proponents of it of, of both of those can feel the the, the failures, right? The, the stagnant quality of of capitalism, the you know due to the increasing inequality and and deindustrialized, financialized nature of it. And I mean, there's a general anxiety about climate change and about uh, just environmental crisis in general, and also the sort of you know, ongoing political breakdown in the global South. It's impossible to prove this, but it feels to me that there's a general anxiety growing in the West and that even as people are critical of China, and uh, others, you know, heavy-handed developmentalist states in East Asia. There's also um, a kind of envy and a projection that, well, maybe they have, maybe they know how to deal with this situation. Like maybe their version of things is gonna work because obviously China has gone through, is going through an, a remarkable economic transformation, right? I mean, you can criticize China for its total lack of concern for civil liberties, but um, they have raised the standard of living for hundreds of millions of people. Basically, you know, the vast majority of progress that has been made against poverty at a global scale is due to China and its, its tremendous development, economic development over the last 40 years. So there's a, yeah, there is a kind of weird envy in it and an, uh, a, you know, an imitation of, of China. You're right. I think that, that in addition to my American focused explanation that needs to be added to it. Well, there's also this aspect of the left clinging on to lockdown so ferociously and early on. And this rather struck me because I was thinking, wait, all you guys are doing Deliveroo to your home, working from your laptops, but no one is thinking about all the people who are barred access to earning a living whose governments will not be supplanting their lost income with any kind of bursaries or grants. Yeah, 
that you in, you're referring to the global south primarily yeah yeah i mean in the us one of the one of the, the one good thing that happened was that there was uh you know increased unemployment and there were stimulus checks stimmy checks as we call them here and actually personal savings went up i mean the american working class is so broke and so indebted that just giving people a break from uh, you know, an eviction moratorium, a break from student loans, and and kicking a little cash down to people, a couple thousand dollars ahead now and then, and we saw personal savings go up eight percent, and you know, actually economic well-being increased. So that that to some extent um, felt like a victory for the left, but also it's I mean I think that it's the politics of the defeated camp. It's an, it's an extension of the kind of politics of um, you know therapeutic politics of of emotional tyranny and you know identity politics and wokeness, right? That this is the left. The left is hasn't had many victories against capital or the state in a long time, and so it has, particularly in the age of social media, turned on itself. And its victories, its little fake victories, instead are are running this or that professor or journalist out of their job for misspeaking. Right. And that, that's what that's what's going on. It's like it's like a defeated camp after a siege turning on itself. It's not surprising the way identity politics has fed into the reaction to covid or the fact that left wing publications were drumming up the fear. You know, in your article in, in the Gray Zone, how Jacobin writer Branko Marcetic called for the unvaccinated to be barred from public transportation. While this is exactly what has come to pass in many countries like Italy, where until the 1st of April, you couldn't take any public transport without uh, certain types of passes the green pass the super green pass then there was a super super green pass i've lost count of how many times they want to accentuate green pass here and they of course it's green pass and they love saying it in english but the other side of this is that you have a whole class of people people without cars people who are poor who cannot access basic necessities and nobody even on the left here in italy was talking about this aside from you had Agamben who was speaking out. You had a lot of academic voices speaking against this, but they were tarnished as being closet right wingers. It was bizarre yeah. to witness. Yeah. At the same time, you have Pelosi. I don't know if you caught that clip of her standing in front of her $10,000 refrigerator, eating what looked like, if I, you know, I Googled it, it looked like to be an $8 frozen yogurt. And she's telling people to have fun during lockdown. And I'm thinking yeah. these people are entirely detached from the reality of most working class people. Absolutely. I mean, well, I mean, Nancy Pelosi is one of the richest members of Congress. At one point, she was worth one hundred and twenty million dollars. Somehow, fifty million dollars of that disappeared. I don't know if she, you know, gave it to the next generation. She probably made a uh, you know, she probably did what rich people do, which is you you make a no interest loan to the next generation who will then inherit both ends of the loan when when you pass away. So she probably did that. Who knows? But yeah, I mean, she's she's part of the one percent. I don't know if we should include her in the left, but um, yeah. But the left, what's more disturbing in a way, I mean, you know, because Pelosi is going to be Pelosi. Um, but yeah, the the fact that, you know, some unions like my my union at CUNY, the PSC, the Professional Staff Congress, 
the administration had settled into a uh, vaccinate or test regime, you know, it's fine. You just have to do regular testing if you're not going to get vaccinated. And the union, because of the hysterical fear of many of the members, is now pushing the administration to force everyone to get vaccinated. In New York City, 3,000, almost 3,000 public workers have been fired for refusing to submit to vaccination. The teachers in the public schools have, you know, officially they have religious and medical exemptions, but there have been no medical, I mean, no religious exemptions offered and maybe a few medical exemptions. So, you know, unions have actually, some unions have, have been worse than employers on this. To be fair, most unions haven't done that, but certain professional unions have, have done that. The teachers here in, in uh, Massachusetts were as late as, uh, you know, the last day of December of last year, demanding that the schools remained closed, right? And I mean, there's no basis in science for this. I mean, kids basically don't get COVID. The, the, the juvenile deaths from COVID were at one point around 7,000. All these people had serious comorbidities. Well, that number's actually even been cut in half, right? So nationally, we're talking about 3,000 people below the age of 19 have died of COVID, right? Or with COVID, right? And yet the, 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 the teachers union here in Massachusetts was demanding that schools be closed, which is very short-sighted because politics are involved here and parents don't like this. And, you know, unions should be concerned not only about the narrow fears of their members, but also about the broader political horizon and the respectability and the brand of the union and the broader struggle beyond the workplace for a set of policies that defend the interests of the working class. And to just pretend that this is reasonable to hold parents and students hostage because you've got some, uh, you know, some percentage of the members who are unhealthy, you know, it's, it's very bad politics. And then now that has, ha that has shown up as crushing electoral defeats for Democrats. Uh, you know, Virginia, most famously, where there was a Democratic favorite, Terry McAuliffe, who was favored, and he got crushed by uh, a guy who came out of nowhere, uh, Youngkin. And, you know, the press tried to cast all this as being about white racism and fear of critical race theory in the schools. But there's actually very little uh, proof of that. And there's much more proof that parents were furious at the really extreme lockdowns Virginia was suffering. And it had some of the worst school lockdowns in the country. They even closed playgrounds and people were arrested for cutting police tape and going into these empty playgrounds. Right. And uh, the polling afterwards showed that the, the 20 point, almost 20 point swing from Democrats over to Republicans in Virginia was led by women, that education was one of the top concerns, and that in terms of education, one of the top concerns was learning loss and the disaster that was online learning and, and all of that. The online learning seemed to be this magical panacea that countries across the West were saying works. Although you speak to teachers, parents, even kids, it was a disaster in Italy. 
people were having nervous breakdowns. How are you supposed to, as a parent at home, take care of the needs of a child in nursery school, another child in elementary school and have time to sleep? This is something no one really thought through. And no one thought through the fact that even those of us working from our computers at home have to work from our computers at home to earn a living. We can't suddenly not work or magically in an Einsteinian way, figure out that time space continuum and poof, there's another day in every day. No one thought this through. And of course, I've written a lot about how women were the ones who were shouldered with the burden of a lot of what was going on. You had doctors here in Italy, mothers who could not go to the hospital because they had to make a choice between a salary or their child's education. No one thought this through. And as much as we would read the babysitter bonus here, what a nightmare. In order to be able to pay a babysitter bonus, you ought to be earning what is much higher than the average national wage in Italy. There is no way that someone can pay someone 1,200 euro a month and be a working class person because the salaries wouldn't permit that. So there was a lot of blind spots in figuring out how to get people to stay at home. Totally terrible. I mean, in Baltimore, something like 20% of school kids never logged on. You know, I mean, like tens of thousands of kids in this country just disappeared for, you know, a year and a half, two years. And a lot of, you know, a lot of people don't have internet, right? They're trying to do this on their phones. It's it's totally insane. And the fact that the left couldn't deal with this, I mean, even as recently as like two months ago, I saw a pundit who will remain unnamed because I actually really respect their politics generally saying, well, you know, the problem with school lockdowns, if we we just had childcare for all, and it's just like, that is so ridiculous, right? As if, first of all, that all school is, is childcare. And then it's like, okay, let's say we did have that. We had childcare for all, like, hmm, and maybe we could offer instruction at these childcare centers. And gee, maybe we should call these childcare centers public schools. It's like, what are you talking about? You know? It's just uh, the mindlessness. And this, this is part of the whole situation that I don't really get, which is the passion, the alacrity, the intensity that so many on the left have had in their embrace of this deeply antisocial um, lockdowns. I mean, I, 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 you know, I, I can explain, you know, like Pfizer made, 20 billion 22 billion dollars profit you know profits equal to the entire size of the cambodian economy um so we know why pfizer and all those who are invested in pfizer have done what they've done but but why why these like young writers in jacobin why what what is all this i I don't quite get it and I, i i have to resort to some you know psychoanalysis or something to some extent which is that there's some sort of libidinal pleasure, right? Just a sadomasochistic pleasure in submitting to the rules, submitting to regulation, and also simultaneously having justification to lash out and condemn and cancel and isolate others, right? I don't, I don't tend to like to go in for psychological explanations, but that seems to be part of what's going on here. Certainly there are those who believe that this is a control of the masses. And it's hard to argue against that when we see that now, two years later, 
You have people afraid to leave their houses. I've spoken with people in grocery store lines here who tell me about their brother, their sister, their parents who don't want to leave the house. The governments have done lockdown so well that they don't know how to get out of lockdown, which of course will have knock-on effects to the economy, right. but no one is talking about the knock-on effects to mental health. And I tell you, Christian, I pitched pieces throughout 2020 about the effects of lockdown on mental health to leftist publications, and one after another, I got the emails all the same. We can't run such a piece because it will look like we're against lockdown. What really? in the hell is that. this? Oh, yeah. yeah. And why is it that any editor... Good for editor, you for doing that. Well, any editor on the left who's, who's reading my pitch should consider even a draft and then get back to me. But they didn't even want the pitch. And this is what bothered me. It wasn't like I, I handed them a shoddy article or something. They yeah. didn't want to even consider that this would affect mental health, which, as we know today, is greatly affected. Yeah. There's also been a real... Uh, collapse in critical thinking. I mean, people clearly are not following the details, right? And they, they basically skim headlines, they listen to NPR, and they refuse to engage with new facts as they emerge. And that I think is, is um, pretty sad and pretty pathetic. And I actually, I blame social media for a lot of this. Me too. Uh, you know, on, and I'm not on social media. And I'm not on social media because I, you know, I've got a, a stack of books that remain unread. I don't want to read, uh, you know, people's hot takes. But I've noticed, <laughs> and every time, every night, I'll look at social media. And I mean, very frequently, I'm just embarrassed by what I see intelligent people who I know in real life, the kinds of things they tweet. And they, de they degrade themselves with these like stupid little fortune cookie sized comments. But uh, I mean, I've noticed that. I'm, Social media definitely inculcates groupthink and it also inculcates and rewards bullshitting, you know, jumping to conclusions, pretending that you've read something. There's a lot of that. Oh, everyone was an immunologist on Twitter. Everyone had something to say about what scientists who studied the field have, have spoken out against. So everyone was like, well, that's not true. Really, <laughs> Mrs. Epidemiologist? Yeah, I mean, I'm not, um, just to push back a little bit on that, I'm, I'm not against that. I, I don't think, I think another problem in, the, in all this has been this like veneration of experts. Expert knowledge, as Winston Churchill said, is, is very, you know, um, very narrow knowledge, you know? Experts have like a lot of expertise on one thing, but it doesn't mean they're right about everything. And so I think there is a place for people to, try and understand science, try and understand policy, to, for lay people to engage with what experts are saying. And lay people have to have humility in doing that. But the idea that it's just like, oh, you shouldn't engage, you're not an immunologist, so shut up. It's like, well, wait a minute. Many of these immunologists are way out of their lane. They have like one little special specialization, and then they just start rambling on about things that they're no more qualified than anyone else to talk about you know the effects of lockdowns what this is going to do to the economy uh you know how technology affects kids brains it's like you know right well i was referring more so to the way that people would use places like twitter or facebook to come up with their overnight immunological training to try to counteract someone who is speaking against lockdown for instance mm -hmm. the great barrington 
declaration. People would say immediately on Twitter, oh, that's bullshit. They don't know what they're talking about. But they didn't take any time to do anything other than read a few headlines or read a few other tweets of people they follow. So yeah. it becomes this mass group think where yeah. no one is free to really independently critique. Yep. Social media gives this this pastiche, this this panorama of everyone's an individual, but in the end, it's the opposite. Everyone yep. was banding around, blocking anyone that didn't agree with them, calling out. And we saw this earlier on than COVID. We saw this around the wars over gender identity. And not surprisingly, Jacobin had run a hit piece on me many years ago after I published my first piece in 2013 on the debate between feminists and transgender activists in the UK. And I took many months to write the piece. And then Jacobin ran the piece saying, basically, I'm going to quote it. If Julian Vigo questioned the existence of straight privilege instead of the existence of cisgender privilege, she would instantly be shouted down by a chorus of gay affirmative voices. Now, the point of my piece was, in fact, questioning what in the hell is cisgender privilege when you're talking to women? Right. And this is what mm -hmm. the feminists have been saying for well over a decade. There is no cis identity but magically identity is spun by these words that then we see fomented on social media such that if you dare say the recent leah thomas scandal if you say leah thomas is male you can lose your twitter account very easily yeah. you are it's, in the uh, dozens of women amazing. kicked off of social media megan murphy from yep. canada feminist current was kicked off she took twitter to court tried to get her account back, arguing, her lawyer argued that Twitter is the social public square. Of course, it's privately owned, it lost. But there are questions to be raised in as much as free speech and being able to say, hey, lockdowns weren't a great idea and mm -hmm. not being able to be booted off of social media for saying that. And we yeah. see this around Russia and Ukraine as well. We see that anyone who says something that is considered over the top is kicked off but who decides what that over the top is yeah a, a bunch of um you know billionaires a bunch of american oligarchs who have you know masked capitalist exploitation in this fog of woke identity politics it's divide et impera right divide and rule uh it's it's all laid out in federalist 10 you know that james madison wrote where you know he says look you can never overcome faction you know, society is never going to be uniformly supportive of, of the social structure of government. So the way to rule is to lean into faction and make sure that there's lots of it. And he says it very explicitly. He says, you know, the most dangerous and common form of faction is that based on what we would say class, right? And he says property, right? Those who, who own property and those who don't. And so it's a kind of jujitsu argument. So you got to lean into faction and make sure there's a proliferation of faction so that it, that it can become kind of politically invigorating because what you don't want is a majority of people to come together around the question of property, right? I mean, that's why Federalist 10 is one of the great political documents of the modern era. And that's what identity politics is about. It's not that identities don't matter it's not that there aren't legitimate issues involved in here but it's that these uh, you know these identity struggles are used to crowd out questions around class questions around property and exploitation 
and uh, you know how things are produced, what is produced, and who gets what. Well, you note this kind of divide between the left that is negating class issues in your article on the privilege walk last year that you wrote for a non-site. You write, the privilege walk is now a standard element in the diversity training used by nonprofits, churches, universities, corporations, and even some parts of the US military. Proponents of the walk say it helps us unlearn oppression and build alliances across difference. Mainstream critics say that the exercise propagates divisive identity politics and mock it as foundational to the oppression Olympics. A Marxist critique would say that the walk transmogrifies material problems into cultural ones. Economic exploitation becomes the more nebulous problem of oppression. Both are forms of domination, yet they are each very distinct. I read this article when you wrote it, and I really identified with much of what you said in it because we have among the left in the politics that the left is propounding today, this hyper atomization of the individual, which is anathema to what the left historically has represented. How yeah. did we get here? Uh, that is a good question. Um, you know, and it, it should, we should start by pointing out that, you know, personal autonomy, liberty was not some add on for the left. This has historically been at the center of the agenda. The whole point of like the socialist, communist, anarchist traditions were to make the promises that, that from those radical positions were seen as false promises, the promises of liberalism make them real, right? The promises of the enlightenment, the, in, the, the liberation of the individual from superstition, from religion, from community, right? That the critique was that you know, liberalism doesn't go far enough because it ignores the economic aspects of this, that you, you can confer legal rights, but if, if people are materially exploited, then those legal rights don't have any material reality. And so the point of overcoming class exploitation and creating a more egalitarian society is so that human freedom can flourish, so that the promise of the enlightenment can be fulfilled, right? In other words, liberty has been central to a left agenda for 150 or 200 years, right? And it's only been since, I think, the 70s that that's been beginning to erode and really in, I mean, accelerating in the last, you know, 10, 15 years with this new censorious kind of vigilantism that I think is really facilitated by, by social media, that that is um, one of the the key areas in which liberty and freedom have become, you know, dirty words for the left, because, you know, getting back to that politics of the defeated camp, the victories that the left pursues now are against itself, against each other. So, you know, that's how it's happened. And there's also, I think, um, specifically within the COVID moment, there's a kind of scientism and uh, an upper, well, a middle class and upper middle class concern with respectability that gets wrapped up with scientism, that is to say, the cult of science, as opposed to the reality of science. The reality of science, the history of science is a history of one paradigm after another falling and heretics uh, turning out to have been correct, right? So with the COVID thing, um, you know, because of the Trump derangement syndrome, uh, the politics of respectability and scientism and the shallow thinking promulgated by social media 
push people towards these conclusions and these anti-freedom politics for very short-term and superficial reasons because they want to, you know, win the internet that day. They want to have like a, you know, a, a, a sick burn and a hot take and all this sort of stuff. And without thinking about it, they have turned their back on the traditional agenda and, um, and are, you know, are spinning for, for the little dopamine hits of, of likes and retweets. I think that's, that's a lot of what it is. And also then just not, they're not thinking deeply. They're not reading the full articles. They're not being with contradictions because the whole style of thought that is demanded by social media is that you come to a conclusion, conclusions, 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 right? And, um, you know, I, I frequently read things and don't take a position on them. You know, I just read something and absorb it and kind of let it be there. And, and I don't, I don't think in terms of like, do I support or do I condemn this? It's like, you know, there's pieces to the argument. Maybe they find interesting, maybe pieces I don't, or just regardless of the argument, maybe there's some information, you know? So, I mean, I don't do that all the time. I also take positions. I also find arguments reprehensible and reject them. I find other arguments like, you know, totally compelling and immediately uh, embrace them. But, but I think it's important to realize that that's not how one should think like a computer, right? Like, uh, one or zero, one or zero, one or zero, that it's like, you can also just let information, history, ideas be in your mind and not pass judgment on them immediately. So, but, but social media uh, does not allow for that. So I think that's part of how the left has, uh, has lost it. But I think it's also, you know, it was about the internal policing um, that comes out of like movement culture there's a kind of, you know, the ultra left politics of the new left, you know, there's a little bit of a kind of a, uh, you know, fantasy element of, you know, revolutionary reenactment. And so there was a lot of internal policing begins off, often well-meaning and, and to some extent necessary, you know, like, you know, feminists in, in, uh, students for democratic society, you know, calling out, you know, the sexism of their peers. I mean, their male peers, right? I mean, it's not like there, there was no problems to be dealt with, but like a culture of sort of self-policing sets in and a discourse around like our people, our communities, taking care of ourselves. It turns into this kind of, you know, um, repressive set of practices that have really taken off under the current social media regime. You're listening to Savage Minds, and we hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We don't accept any money from corporate or commercial sponsors, and we depend upon listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. You note in the first privilege walk, the way in which there's been an intense focus on individuality and on what we call subjectivity and you write in the name of politics and done at the expense of political economy what has led us to not be able to tease out one from the other in a sense we've conflated them such that i had someone on my facebook wall last year and it was march when i said i think we need to rethink what's happening here but you were pro lockdown the other week and I said, yes, and I take information in, 
I read a lot and then I come to different conclusions because we're not frozen in time. And this right. virus is not all understood. At least it wasn't a month ago. Now we understand much more of it. Is it the case that we must remain locked down as if it's a middle-aged plague and we must now give in to the powers that be because they say so? At what point can we say it's time to leave our house? Yeah, I mean, as, as Keynes said, when I'm confronted by new information, I change my mind. What do you do? Right, right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was, you know, I, I was the same way. I mean, in early March, I was washing my groceries, scolding my mother for not doing the same, you know. But it was, it was because I took it so seriously that I was also reading closely, and I wanted to know, well, what is the real fatality rate of this disease? And then it started coming out. There was a study in Iceland, you know, and I get into all this in the in the the gray zone piece, right? It's like the infection fatality rate rather than the case fatality rate. And to, to determine the infection fatality rate, you've got to sample whole populations. They did that in Iceland and they found out that, whoa, first of all, there's a lot of asymptomatic cases and therefore the infection fatality rate is much, much lower than we thought. It was like essentially similar to a very bad version of seasonal influenza like a very, very bad, not Spanish flu, but like, you know, current, more modern versions of influenza. It's sort of like two or three times as bad as a typical bad flu season. I mean, so that's serious, right? And that, and that does require some interventions. And that's where the Great Barrington Declaration comes along, which everyone condemned for guilt by association, which is another thing I've noticed in this time. My friends, some of the more intelligent people I know even just do this thing where it's like, well, that was published in the New York Post. Like, you know, Hunter Biden's laptop is like, well, you can't believe that because that was in the New York Post. It's like, look, man, even a broken clock is right twice a day. You know, can we just, you know, can we just like think about these things? But anyway, so you, know, you see that the, the, the research from Iceland started coming in uh, from the Princess Cruise that was trapped in Tokyo Harbor. And then I realized, oh, wait a minute, this isn't as bad as we thought. The field hospitals in New York City are closed. Uh, and then, you know, it was at that point where I realized, okay, there's no room for thinking because this has been totally politicized. And then it, what ha some of the things that were not, you know, discussed along the way were, was the tremendous damage being done in the global South. I mean, these really vicious lockdowns, 80,000 people arrested in the Dominican Republic, 40,000 people arrested in Guatemala. And, you know, your, your readers know this, your listeners know this, but it's worth reminding them, Guatemalan jails are not nice places. No jail is nice, but particularly in, in a very, very poor state like Guatemala, right? On and on, it's kind of repression. The teachers union in Jordan being totally smashed and dissolved by the state in the name of fighting COVID. The fact that basically 10 years of improving macroeconomic conditions in the global South are put into reverse and the, the debt in the global South soars Poverty in the global south soars. Uh, deaths from starvation among children shoot up. Right, this is all basically ignored, right? And it's being caused by the fact that these states are following the lockdowns, and also by the economic whiplash of the huge hit that northern economies took in 2020. Right, there's this like massive dive uh, in in you know economic growth, I think it's like a you know, 20% decline in the second quarter of 2020. But then of course, there's this enormous 
enormous amounts of money printed and pushed into the system that gin up asset values. There's been a, a massive, massive inflation of financial asset values, and that's helped for 1%. But there, were, there was also some redistribution that had to happen you know, through the CARES Act, and that's the stimulus checks and the, the unemployment. Um, but that, so that initial kind of dive uh, in, in the Northern economies translates into economic whiplash in the global South and massive increases in poverty and debt, uh, collapse of remittances, et cetera, et cetera. Hardly any of that is discussed. I mean, there were, to be fair, there were some articles about this here and there in the left press, but you know, very marginal. So it's, it's terrible. It's, it's a disaster what, what has happened here. And a lot of people have turned against the left and the left is unaware of this, it seems to me, because the left has become so proficient at insulating itself and policing itself and condemning others who, who uh, don't agree with them. But um, there's going to be there's going to be a lot of um, right-wing political victories in the near future. There's also going to be, you know, uh, this is also has a lot to do with the Ukrainian war, right? There's going to be, there's already a new food crisis. And we saw what that did in 2011 uh, that led directly to the Arab Spring. And, you know, the, you know, the collapse of various countries into failed states. So we're entering a total restructuring of the international uh, political economy, right? A, a breaking into camps, uh, a, a renewed cycle of crisis, instability, and debt and suffering in the global south. And, you know, in, in the core economies, like the, the liberal center has shown itself to be profoundly authoritarian. The policymakers, the bureaucrats, and the rank and file the, you know, the chattering classes that, you know, the, of which, you know, from which the left, the professional left, at least in the U.S., mostly draws its, its self-identifying members, have revealed their, their taste for fundamentally repressive policies of censorship and segregation and punishment, punitive bullying. And all of this divides the working class. You know, um, it, interesting, there was a, you know, a, the first Amazon warehouse just organized a union, an independent union it, here in the U.S. to New York City. And the, the guy who, or, who led the organizing named Christian Smalls, his first beef with Amazon was around lack of personal protective equipment. But Amazon fired him for violating social distancing rules, right? That's an illustration of how these measures are not apolitical. They are not, you know, purely technical. They're always available for hierarchies to use against members uh, of, you know, people lower down the hierarchy, right? So there's, and the left has embraced all this stuff as if it's purely technical, totally apolitical. And if you have a beef with these vaccines and these vaccine mandates, you are ipso facto totally out of your mind, right? But I mean, that is, that's totally wrong and superficial. Very few things are apolitical and purely technical and certainly not these measures which have divided the working class. And this is happening at 
at the time when we, we now have the tightest labor market in 40 years. And the left should be working to unite the working class and unite everyone to push for better working conditions and higher wages. And while some of that is beginning to happen per the Amazon victory, far more energy has gone into bullying and dividing. I, I, my union has sent out, sent out way more emails about COVID than it did about the Build Back Better agenda, which was Biden's designed to fail social spending package. I kept wondering throughout all this, and I was in touch with George Agamben as well. Wow, that's <laughs> He's cool. going to come on the show at some point, oh, actually. Oh, that's excellent. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm writing up all the questions and organizing that now. But, he, you know, I, I had to wonder, why did we not have philosophers on camera, nightly or weekly, talking about some of the ethical dimensions of lockdown? Because one thing that struck me, given that in Italy, the average age of COVID death was 83 at one point. Mm -hmm. I believe the number is right around there still, which is... And that must be higher <laughs> than the average life expectancy in Italy, exactly. I would imagine. Exactly. Why didn't we have philosophers discussing this? Because what I feel is that I was put into a pressure cooker, many people were, where we had to homeschool magically find time to work, magically find time to eat. You know, if you're homeschooling children, you don't have time to work and eat as a parent. And we weren't asked to discuss what we were putting in the balance here. We were asked to give up our savings, our livelihoods, our health, our sleep in return for people to live another week or two or month or two or year or two. And I know this sounds callous to some people, but this is the reality of what happens when you are in triage, even in an A&E. You have to decide who gets treatment first and why. And people are put on this waiting list of according to age and the seriousness of their injury or sickness, et cetera. But we never did a triage, not really, around what was asked of all of us who were losing our livelihoods, who were suffering mm -hmm. economically and psychologically. Yeah, and we now know also dying. You know, I mean, it, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't even as harsh as you're saying. It wasn't just like the triage question. It was it was a basic um, cost benefit analysis, which we do all the time and which is central to medicine. Right. I mean, honest medicine realizes that there's always a risk with a medical intervention. And it's like cost benefit analysis. Is it worth doing this? You know, um, but so, yeah, we were not allowed to do a cost benefit analysis. Had we it would have come out much sooner that, well, wait a minute, you know, these lockdowns kill people, you know, in your effort to, to save the most vulnerable among us, you know, you could be killing other people. And in this country, we had a 30% increase in murders during the first year of the lockdown. That's totally, that's directly linked to the lockdowns. One thing that criminologists have known for years, left, right, and center, criminologists understand that work is the most effective form of anti-crime social control. And it's actually not necessarily because of the income that comes with work. The more important factor is that it absorbs your time. And when people have all day to stew and fester with their rivals, etc., murder occurs, you know. But when but when the, those dynamics of hostility get interrupted by like time to get up and go to work again, you know, and now you've got some new problem at work that absorbs your psychic energy, right? So, you know, murders went up. Uh, I mean, even traffic deaths went up, at, even as 
number of miles driven went down. Interestingly, suicide stayed level. Um, the foregoing all elective care has translated into increase in um, more severe cancers and um, cardiovascular disease. It's crazy. You know, I mean, one thing that I think uh, is important for my article is that the whole the incentive for overcounting these deaths, because that was crucial to the hype and fear that the left clung to, right? And so I don't charge some massive conspiracy. I show how in the chaotic moments, early moments of this pandemic, the government's policies, on the one hand, created a crisis for the healthcare system. And then on the other hand, through the CARES Act, created an incentive to overcount COVID deaths. And the incentive was the Providers Relief Fund, which was $178 billion, which is a quarter equal to a quarter of the US military budget. This was a fund that would allow, um, that would cover the costs of COVID care at 120% of typical Medicare coverage. So you have the government on the one hand, shutting down in basically every state except for North Dakota, shutting down elective procedures, which sends hospitals in the healthcare industry into a financial crisis. By the end of April, 1.4 million healthcare workers in the middle of a pandemic had been fired because of financial crisis, right? And so then there's this incentive, like here's this money that you can have and it'll come quickly and we'll give you a 20% bonus if you can show that these cases are COVID. At first, to qualify for this provider relief fund money, healthcare providers had to have an in vitro test. Those rules were changed so that basically if a doctor thought that it was COVID, you know, you could get this money. Um, I mean, even, even COVID funerals were being subsidized. So it's not to charge like some grand conspiracy, but it's like this incentive structure was created in this moment of chaos. And so there, that helps explain why COVID deaths in the US, along with how unhealthy we are, that helps explain why we had 63% more COVID deaths or deaths classified as COVID than our next closest or the average OECD country, you know? And if you look at the numbers, it's sort of like the US, Belgium, and the UK, and then way, way down are the other wealthy economies, much, much lower um, rates of, of COVID death. And already in the US, these deaths are being scaled back. The CDC uh, knocked down its numbers by 70,000 recently. Uh, the state of Massachusetts just two weeks ago uh, reduced its, its tally of COVID deaths by over 4,000. So we know that there, you know, that there's a lot of room uh, in, in what qualifies as a COVID death. Well, one thing that struck me as well during the summer of 2020, when we saw the statistics coming out, well, they were coming out immediately, but it was very firmly known at that point that the comorbidities were obesity, diabetes, and cardiac issues, uh, heart, uh, blood pressure issues related to COVID deaths. Why did, in my knowledge, no government has taken any kind of action to work to ask populations to be more invested in personal health, for instance. Why were governments not giving the poor, let's say, passes to the gym or something that would actually work to produce a healthier population that might be less at risk of getting 
seriously ill from this illness. I saw very yeah. little action, proactive action, I should say, happening to mitigate the problems surrounding COVID that could be directly reduced by exercise and diet. Yeah, I mean, the simple answer is because the pharmaceutical industry was making too much money. And if you invest in it, you're, you also saw your you know, stock portfolio increasing and that all of the uh, you know, quantitative easing justified by the, the hysteria was, was also ginning up asset prices. So that would be the very crass, simple explanation, right? That, that elites were, were making too much money off of this to take any other path. And, um, you know, the public health, like in this country, the public health officials are, um, they're literally invested in this. Half of, not half, uh, but like between 40 and 45% of the budgets of the CDC and the NIH come directly from user fees that are generated by doing research for big pharma. The government scientists are allowed to own patents and make money. They're allowed to make up to $150,000 a year per patent. To be fair, most of the patents don't make that much. The average patent makes just shy of $10,000 a year. But so there's also, you know, that material incentive is that the, the actual bureaucracy is staffed by people whose material interests would be threatened by the kind of health advice you just suggested, right? What they want is for everybody to go out and get as many shots which in this country have all been on the public dime as many shots as possible, right? Yes, but it's interesting that the companies like Moderna and Pfizer have not been held to account for their scientific information, have they? Now? Oh yeah, no, they haven't, and, right? And you noted in your article that Chomsky hand waved the issue away. I had him on the show. He was my first guest on this podcast. And I asked him about this and I was a bit alarmed by his response because I think that there should be more distrust of the information that we're given. Just as an intellectual, we should be distrustful, right? On that count. But as information came in over the course of 2020, we were not given enough information to carpet any kind of rationale for lockdowns. It was already known then. Hence, the Great Barrington Declaration received so many signatures early on. And it's now in the, it's over 80,000, I believe, of scientists and doctors who've signed it. So I would like to know why people like Noam Chomsky, who's always been distrustful of private corporations, why they're not aware that the public domain, our government is getting the information from these private corporations and these private corporations are blocking access in court to releasing this information. You know, that's a good question. I mean, I guess it's just fear, right? They're being overwhelmed by fear uh, that, 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 you know, that even Noam Chomsky who has done so much to criticize the manufacturing of consent is you know susceptible to the same processes and and he he has seems to just be terrorized by this and and has put his faith in in these vaccines um i think that's part of it but you know and it's it's a response to the whole social environment too that it's like it's very very hard to break from from the herd i mean you're going to lose friends i've lost friends over this you know i mean if you dissent, you will be shunned, right? And there's also a class thing. I think that, you know, 
the middle classes, the professional classes who expect to be listened to are very concerned with their social standing among their peers. And working class people, it seems to me, are much less concerned with that because that's not as big a part of their work lives and therefore their social lives, right? I mean, you can, you can be a fantastic carpenter um, and have crazy ideas, right? You can be um, you know, an amazing mechanic and, and believe in all sorts of crackpot stuff. And, and no one's gonna be like, whoa, don't get your car fixed by that guy. He's totally insane. He believes in the Loch Ness monster. He'd be like, doesn't matter. Guy's great with, uh, you know, he's great with these difficult old cars or whatever, right? And so there's a kind of intellectual freedom in the working class that doesn't exist for the professional classes. And the professional classes, it's like uh, the politics of respectability are very intense. So I think that's part of it too, is that like people unconsciously don't want to break from the herd because they know they will be condemned and uninvited and, and possibly worst of all, laughed at, you know? So it's a kind of like moral cowardice based in a, based in a particular kind of petty bourgeois vanity. It's pretty pathetic. You mentioned earlier the Hunter Biden laptop. I investigated this story early on as well, and I was rather alarmed that the New York Times and other major outlets were running stories casting doubt, aspersions on the validity of this laptop, which had already been authenticated. Yeah. Well, then they censored it. I mean, the discussion of it was censored. Yeah, I know it's censored between major media running hit pieces on the New York Post and then social media blocking the New York Post's account and sharing of anything related to that article, locking out people from their accounts who did share the article. It was a full-on uh, coup d'etat of the social media sector. And I've noticed in my work on other issues that there is a almost brotherhood between government, major media, and social media. When I say government, I'm talking in these days, the Democratic Party. We saw this with Russiagate as well. We had to pull teeth out to get the New York Times to admit that it got some things wrong about Russiagate. Yep. And all these outlets ran with lies, were allowed to run with lies. And then last week, was it, or just the week before, we get the New York Times admitting, finally, that the Hunter Biden laptop was real. Well, yep. it was already known to be real. And so we're running in this crowd of folks who will not want to follow me on Twitter because I dare share something from the New York Post. How did we get to this era where just sharing something from Fox News or the New York Post will make you persona non grata in the eyes of the woke left? Yeah, well, you know, social media and politics of respectability. I think that's and identity politics and the kind of uh, politics of the defeated camp and, and the kind of, um, you know, um, fantasy football, like left politics, where, you know, you do the, you do the end of the revolution first, take down the statue. I mean, they, they have it completely out of order. No, 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 no. First you take state power, then you pull down the old regime statues. Not that I'm like, I, I, I'm in favor of taking down uh, statues of, you know, traitors like uh, Robert E. Lee. But um, let's just be clear that it doesn't really do that much. Um, but the, um, yeah, the, you know, it's this whole thing of um, 
censorship by private corporations is really important. I, as I mentioned this in the article too, I mean, I've been shocked by the number of people who, who say to me like, well, that's an interesting case. So the censorship of Joe Rogan, Spotify taking down 20,000 uh, individual podcast episodes of various people because of COVID content, that's not really censorship. It's like, okay, well, whatever you want to call it, you know, it's wrong. And it is, you know, the 1% dominating our mental landscape so you can you can call it information smoothing you can call it you know um uh information curation for social harmony you call it whatever kind of ridiculous name you want it's wrong and it's and it's capital dominating the the intellectual life of the population it's important to remember right that inqtel is you know the cia's venture capital firm was a crucial early investor in a lot of these companies. That doesn't mean all of this is controlled by the CIA, but it means that there's an influence from the government. And, you know, something interesting happens in the 70s, which is that the CIA is busted spying domestically, which is illegal. There are three different commissions about this. The Rockefeller Commission, there's two early kind of failed commissions in the early 70s, and then finally the Church Committee in the Senate uh, exposes this. And there's a massive destruction of documents associated with, with Operation Chaos, which was an illegal, domestically oriented um, version of COINTELPRO, a kind of like counterinsurgency domestically run by the CIA, managed by James Jesus Engleton. And, um, and at that, after that, you know, the kind of being taken to the woodshed by the church committee hearing, the, the CIA is very clear about like, we have to do more of this off the books. And that's when the, the whole off the books approach begins. We saw that during Iran-Contra, right? It wasn't, it wasn't just some sort of mask. It was like the CIA was legitimately moving things into the private sector. It's the whole politics of the nudge. And they realize it's like the agency doesn't have to be in control of everything. And it's like you can you can trust private corporations and your and your allies in the foundations, you know, to carry on the same agenda. Right. Uh, and uh, you can you know, you can social control can happen more organically, more collaboratively. Right. So that that begins uh, as, as a kind of pattern of social control, a method of social control to be less state focused and to push it out and let go of it and allow the foundations, allow private corporations to carry on the preferred agenda, to have a little faith in your allies in the corporate sector. And that's part of what's going on here with social media. It's not to say social media is actually controlled by the CIA. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying that like this idea that the state's agenda is not somehow actualized by these private sector corporations is naive and ahistorical. And it doesn't realize, it, it, it's, it, it's to not be aware of the way in which the state realized that it doesn't have to keep everything on its books, that it can pursue its goals through the private sector. And you see this in more benign ways, just like Al Gore's reinvention of government, right? The rise, the tremendous rise of military contracting. You know, I used to be a, a, you know, a, a conflict reporter and, and spent a lot of time in war zones. And it's like the, the amount of private sector activity associated with the U.S. military is vastly increased since Vietnam, right? During the Vietnam War, 
most logistics were done by the military. The CBs built things. Now it's all done by these private firms, right? So every, throughout government, there has been a subcontracting, a massive sort of like transition to subcontracting. And there's an element of that with social media. And, and I think people on the left should be a little more nuanced and not be like, well, it's the private sector. It has nothing to do with the state's agenda. That's not true at all. Well, there's a lot of people who believe what they read in the papers, because as you know, most people don't have time to do research to make sure that what the New York Times is telling them is actually true. So we're stuck in this gyre yeah. of information where the word disinformation is used regularly by people who just want to beef up their own narrative while dissing the other. How is the average working person supposed to know what is being said in the media as true or false? This is another problem that we have because add social media to that and you can be easily at a loss as to what to believe. Yeah, that's a really tough, tough question. I mean, one has to learn to read more critically, you know, um, and, you know, there's certain tricks. It's like pretty much everything does come out, you know, I mean, as per the example of the New York Times and the Washington Post recently admitting that the Biden, the Hunter Biden laptop is real, right? It's like, eventually it all comes out. And so, you know, you got to read the bottoms of the articles. You got to read the little throwaway comments. I mean, frequently the big stories, the truth, the, the, the key to explaining things are, are in these papers, but as throwaway comments. I, for example, I mean, I have one in the article where it's about, you know, Buried in a long Financial Times article about vaccines in the global south, there was like one or two lines about how rollout of vaccines in the global south were, were also harmed by the fact that Pfizer and the other vaccine producers demanded indemnification and publicly funded um, public funds to protect them should they face lawsuits. And some countries in the global south, for example, South Africa, said, no, we're not going to change our laws to protect you against any liability. And we're not going to take public money and put it in a fund to help you face down any legal challenges. Right. So, I mean, that that's a huge story that should have been a constant theme headlines, but it's in there. It's buried. So it's like, I mean, I don't know. The answer to your question is how how's the average working class person supposed to you know, wade through the ideological spin to get to the facts that are usually present here and there scattered throughout the coverage. I mean, it, it, it takes a lot of time and, uh, and, it, and it takes a kind of, you know, a weird combination of cynicism and critical thinking, but also realizing that these, many of these publications do also tell you the truth. They it's buried, it's in the bottom, it's packaged as if it's not important, but you know, you got to learn to trust your own instincts. If you, if you read a, a fact and you think, wow, that, that strikes me as something that's very important, even though the framing of this article suggests that, that, that it's an unimportant detail, trust yourself, you know? Right. As I suggested earlier, philosophers on screen every week, but was there a moment, is there a moment even now for us to have a social debate over death? Because a lot of this was driven by pure fear of death. People went yeah. hysterical, for lack of a better word, over the fact that their grandparent might die. 
Now, yeah. grandparents die, and guess what? You and I are going to die. You know, this is just part of life. Mm -hmm. And I was a bit apoplectic at certain moments when I was reading media stories and the hype over this, why we weren't discussing death like, in a very basic, humane way. Yeah, we, we should have that conversation. Um, what I noted about that was why, why this threat? Why these deaths? You know, I mean, why are we not concerned about automobiles? You know, uh, why, why are we not freaking out about the danger of driving? Uh, why are we not freaking out about the danger of air pollution? The fact that, you know, thousands and thousands of people are killed every year breathing filthy air. Yeah, you know, I, yeah, it's like, um, and I, th I think, you know, the, the fact that we don't discuss all these risks that, you know, increasingly deregulated neoliberal capitalism does introduce more and more risk into everyday life, that people carry that fear and, and, and then they try and deal with this either by obsessing about it and becoming hypochondriacs or just going into denial about it, but that it's there anyway. And then there's no public discussion about any of this stuff, like how, how afraid of whatever routine risk it is should we be? We don't have those conversations. So then finally, we had this one public conversation about risk and danger and health and all of the anxiety about all the other risks seemed to affect upon this. And so instead of talking about the carcinogenic chemicals in our food and the you know, insane uh, you know, danger of our transportation system, we focused on COVID. And yeah, I mean, we should have, uh, we should have that conversation uh, about, about death, um, but you know, we shouldn't be cavalier about, about it because, and I don't, I don't think that's necessary. And that's what the, the Great Barrington Declaration, which should be pointed out, didn't have many details, right? It was a set of principles, which is like focused protection, right? Um, we don't have to accept like, well, we're just gonna sacrifice the old. No, we can say, wait a minute, we need to come up with a system to protect the most vulnerable. We're talking about, you know, the elderly. That's who this mostly kills. It's like, you know, was it like two thirds of all deaths were occurred in people over the age of 70, um, you know, and people with comorbidity. So it's like, how, how could we protect the most vulnerable rather than just invoking the most vulnerable among us while we trash society and, you know, um, yeah, basically have this pharmaceutical coup d'etat unnamed and force everybody, uh, you know, force through the pharmaceutical industry's wet dream agenda, the tech sector's wet dream agenda, and the financial sector's, you know, wet dream agenda of, of, of basically having endless free um, money from the government, basically having the, the public through the Federal Reserve be the customer to which you get to sell garbage corporate bonds. That's what's going on. You know, there are all these zombie firms. Like the credit rating of most American firms has, has uh, collapsed compared to what it was 20 or 30 years ago. When I looked into it recently, only Johnson & Johnson still had a AAA credit rating, right? And there are a lot of companies such as JCPenney's that like would not be in business if it weren't for quantitative easing. That is to say, they would not be in business if the Federal Reserve were not buying their corporate bonds because the private sector would look at the risk and say, well, there's no way that JCPenney is able to pay these bonds back. 
If you lend them money, you know, they're going to go under, unless, of course, they can continually sell new bonds, right? And so quantitative easing involves the Federal Reserve going into these markets and buying these garbage, these junk bonds, you know? Um, so... So all these, so all these, so, so corporate America like was, you know, making money hand over fist during this crisis is the point. It mirrors a lot of the Wall Street bailout as well, where corporations matter more than all the other diseases that could be talked about, all the ways in which children dying, well, we can talk about the 3,000 children's deaths in the U.S., but if we really want to address travesty on a massive scale, we should be talking about poverty and malnutrition and thirst, something that a lot of corporations have a hand in. I don't know if yeah. you caught the nation's coverage of the water wars. This was around 2003, four, but it's, it's quite fascinating to see how Pepsi-Cola, Coca-Cola, Perrier have gone to countries like South Africa where water is written into their constitution so that everyone has an access to a right to it. And they try to get them to change their constitution because money. And it's, it's really daunting when you start to look at the vaster panorama of why you asked earlier, why COVID? Why not all these other diseases that kill far more people? And those questions haven't been asked and they're conveniently not being asked. So my last question for you is this, a lot of people on social media these weeks are saying, oh, we're being fed a new stage of trauma, which is now Russia, Ukraine. We go from COVID to Russia, Ukraine. And I'm thinking, you know, to the way in which people like Matt Taibbi has have said quite astutely that the media is ramping out anger. People can be angry with other people, can be angry with the opposite political party. And are we caught in this cycle where media is sort of controlling the way we live our lives in intellectually and emotionally so that now we've gone from being immunologists to being somehow experts on Ukraine, Russia? Yes. I mean, we are if we follow what we're told. And unfortunately, it seems that, you know, the middle classes um, who are the more avid media consumers also seem to be the most ideologically um, in step with the system. But yes, it's, it's, it's almost comical. It, it would be comical if it weren't so tragic the way this, you know, the panicked hysterical mob that, that, you know, mainstream society in the West has become has been so quickly and easily turned into, um, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, towards baying for, for, for blood, right? We've got Sean Penn uh, last night saying, or maybe it was the night before on Hannity saying that the U.S. needs, needs to not be so afraid of, uh, you know, threatening use of its atomic arsenal. I mean, that's just totally insane. All these people talking about, you know, we need to have a no-fly zone, which is a total misnomer. It's not a no-fly zone. It means we need to have an air war with Russia. This is crazy, right? And it is deeply depressing. I mean, I, yeah, I, it's, it's hard to, to maintain political faith under these conditions. One just has to be sort of Zen, you know, and keep doing the right thing in a kind of with a feeling of sort of non-attachment. It's like, you know, don't get fixated on whether or not you succeed, but just keep doing the right thing. Think critically, read, 
you know, spend your time wisely, shut out the, the mindless chatter and, and, and the, uh, you know, the hostility of the, the online mobs and, and, you know, stay focused and, and I guess uh, just have faith that in the long run, you know, people will realize their class interests and we will overcome this, this spectacle of, of moralizing and divisive nonsense and, and get down to uh, the real politics of fighting against the economic elites who control everything and are um, running our planet into the ditch.